Warning, you're about to hear unfiltered insights about regenerative agriculture and our sovereign right to natural food. This is not just a podcast, but a patriotic movement against the tide of food ignorance and corporate food giants shaping our modern food system. It's time to feed the people. Every time, dude. Can't help it. It just hits every time. Every time. You can't help it. That old southern music just gets you moving. Toe tapping. Skunk holler, my man. (laughs) I'm going to talk more about this music uh, later on uh, in our description of what value for value is but this song Mm -hmm. was made for us by one of our producers his name is nate and so we're going to talk about nate in the value for value section later but in the meantime i must ask how the heck are you aj dude i'm doing so great i appreciate you asking it's been a fantastic week here in richfield we got snow last night down to the low levels which is awesome so we might have a wet year in Utah, which we need to keep recovering from those long drought years. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, well, today we are going to be talking about community-powered food food movements. And the reason that we are going to be doing that is because it's going to play into the larger theme that this mission is about, and which is about decentralizing and bringing food back to our communities. So where I'm hoping to start with you today is to start to create some defining definitions around what community-led food movements look like. So let's just let's just define centralization versus decentralization when it comes to food. What do you have to yeah. share with us on on that exactly? So the the centralization of our food is essentially, you know, I was doing some research this last week to kind of just continue to understand the complexities of our food supply chain. And one thing I've been considering is if four major companies, not if, four major companies control 85% of our food supply chain. Well, that in and of itself already implies centralized, right? There's so much control of a market segment. Now, this market segment happens to be the most important for human survival, which is food. But aside from that, that's what centralization looks like. And so then I thought, okay, if four major companies control that, we also know that the the, the packers, they call them, the slaughterhouses, are massive. We're talking thousands of head of cattle or pork or chicken, depending on what you know meat avenue you're talking about. Thousands of head of cattle per day are slaughtered in a single slaughterhouse attached to these big four brands. And so my initial research is that only 20 major slaughterhouses produce that volume of that 85% volume, only 20 major slaughterhouses produce that quantity of beef for those four companies. What do you think would happen if five of them went out for whatever reason, which has happened by the way, when they're producing six to 10,000 head per day, what do you think that does to your regional supply? Major shortage. 
major shortage and they can't pivot. So this is what we saw happen in COVID because of centralization, these major packers had to close because of illnesses. And so you essentially took out that volume of production daily that led to supply shortages on the meat on the, in the counters of major cities that didn't have a lot of agricultural production happening around them. Uh, and it caused these other back downstream effects like feedlots backing up. And so you saw news reports of thousands of head of livestock being slaughtered and just dumped into a pit and covered up because they couldn't afford to feed them. So centralization is when you've put all of those resources into a few hands to manage and decentralization or community supported agriculture is small scale yet powerful in its ability to keep people fed. So our, our processing plant in Richfield has the ability to process about 150 to 200 a day, depending on where that's going. That gives us the ability to feed 100,000 people 10 ounces of beef a day. So if there was a major disruption, we can feed the nearest 100,000 people to our location. And we aren't talking about a far drive, right? We're not talking about transporting massive semi loads from Nebraska back to the West. We're talking about Salt Lake City is two hours away. St. George, Utah, two hours away. So worst case scenario, you load up your horse drawn buggy with some, you know, thick blankets and frozen beef and you head down the road and you can meet your consumers halfway there and keep people fed. I've, I've come across in this movement, a lot of different people that are starting to develop this in that localized community supported way. It's great. It's really cool to see the movement shifting. So uh, to give people, the listeners, some background as to who I am and what has allowed me to be on here today, I yeah. am known uh, for telling stories and for talking on a microphone. But the way I started my career is I studied economics. I was an economics student. And then I got my MBA at a Korean university called Yonsei University, and I studied strategy or strategic management. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm talking, I'm, I'm being informed by that experience and that background. Okay. So just, just laying that out there for the listeners. Yep. I personally believe in a diversified portfolio for our food supply chain, which would include a healthy mix of centralization and decentralization as options. The advantages of centralized food supply, let's just keep it on that, is that when companies get to a certain scale, they can leverage their economies of scale to then deliver food for less money that is a little bit cheaper and, and reach a broader amount of people in the marketplace. Right. That's a good thing when if it's met with a ethical approach to the quality of the meat. And I'm not saying that it is, and I'm not saying that it isn't necessarily in this deconstruction. What I'm telling you is that it's what it could be. Yep. And, and, and so that's good. But the risks are the more you centralize or reduce your options, the more risk you take on in the case that we have an unexpected, uh, what they call uh, a black swan event like mm -hmm. a COVID, for example, or any number of things like war. Hack hackers. Hackers. 
yep. corporate that sabotage. Twenty twenty one. Perfect. Decentralized would allow for people to have a broader access to small production by scale, places like Utah Beef producers, as an example, that when multiplied by a couple of dozen, possibly a couple of hundred, now no one company, if if one happens to have a breakdown, then it doesn't shut down such a large percentage of access to the food. Right. Now, the challenge before is that the major companies had the money to afford the technology that allows them to deliver their product to more people, whereas the smaller places didn't have access to the technology for whether it's sanitation, whether it's for marketing, or whether it's for delivery. But now we live in a time, which is amazing, that the technology has trickled down to be more accessible and more affordable for the small ranchers and farmers so mm-hmm. then they can leverage those technologies to reach more people. Right. Which is a wonderful opportunity. But as we'll get into later in the show, that is becoming a threat to the organizations that are trying to centralize the market and take a bigger slice of the pie. So if I can use the pie analogy or metaphor, most companies that compete for centralization of the marketplace are playing what is known in strategy as a win-loss scenario. Mm -hmm. In order for me to win, I have to take more of the pie, which means that you lose some of your market share in the pie. Yep. What we're describing now in the decentralized uh, market and ecosystem that we currently live in and can continue to invest in is we expand the pie. I don't have to win. It's a win-win scenario. I don't have to win by making you lose. I get to win by making the pie bigger, Mm -hmm. therefore keeping the share that I have produced and receiving the value back. Yes. And one of those companies that you've been sharing on your Instagram is a place called Texas Beef House. And so one of the ways that they have been uh, exercising their natural right, uh, their sovereign right to natural food into delivering that sovereign natural food to people is that they've recently or are about to have on November 11th, this show will debut just a couple of days after the auction, but they are having an auction for the beef that they've produced to receive the market value for their beef because people will be bidding on it. And that's a beautiful thing about this economy. So what I'd like to do is just to give them a shout out. I would like to play their auction commercial from Instagram. And they are at, on Instagram, at Texas Beef House. And this is their uh, auction commercial. It's about 30 seconds. Here at Texas Beef House, this is one of the pastures that our cattle see. We plant summer and winter pasture and do rotational grazing multiple times a year. This November, on November 11th at 1 p.m., we are having our first ever beef auction. We are auctioning off Angus and Wagyu beef, different cuts and primals of beef. You can bid in person or you can bid online. CCI.live. Come see us and get some good beef. 
And this Brooks, this is the, this is an attempt to change the system the way we have known it since the eighties. And what I mean by that is this is the first time a company is creating an online auction for frozen packaged beef. Typically these online auctions, you would, you would view them and online is actually fairly new for the beef and cattle space uh, anyway. I mean, it's been around for a few years, but the traditional way was you went into a barn that was set up in a way that they could run cattle in front of you and you'd have, you know, the auctioneers sitting there talking a hundred miles an hour and uh, bidders, you know, old men ranchers just raising their finger and bidding on these um, uh, lots of live cattle. So these guys at Texas beef house are trying something totally new so that they can take control of the market at the ranch level or as close to the ranch level as possible. So if they're finishing beef, if they're ranching and finishing it, meaning it's ready to be processed for meat for us, they're now running lots, boxes full and, and uh, you know, whole briskets and things like that in an auction format. So people can engage that way. It's first time being done. So this is what it looks like to explore ways to transform our food supply chain and create more community supported agriculture. It's pretty cool. And in the marketplace of ideas, we call this innovation. That's right. Yeah? We call this innovation. Yeah. Let's get I'm going to get my deck here ready. We're just getting warmed up, AJ and I. Let's get a <laughs> let's get a shout out. Let's get a round of applause for innovation. Absolutely. And that is what is possible when you allow the market to flow more freely. And mm-hmm. in a decentralized market, it doesn't cut off centralized companies options it simply expands the options for consumers and this is something that i i hope to emphasize is that we're not in favor i I, i'm going to speak for you but i don't think you are in favor or saying that no these none of these companies should exist it's that we shouldn't be allowing companies that are huge to unfairly crush who they view as competitors and eliminate options for end consumers. Right. And and so when you have people like Tyler Duvall from Texas Beef House, he's going to explain, I'm going to give them a little more airtime here. He's going to explain the process of the auction and the types of ways that they uh, feed their cattle so the end consumer can get a very clear, transparent look at the way that their beef is being uh in this case, beef is being handled, which in the mm-hmm. more centralized companies, you oftentimes are hit that that sort of information is hidden from the end consumer. So I'm going to give Tyler Duvall about a minute of airtime here to explain their process. We're going to live auction off Wagyu and Angus beef that is going to come straight from our farm right here in East Texas. You're going to have lot numbers. You're going to have descriptions on how many pounds a whole ribeye, or it's already a cut up ribeye. If it's a whole tenderloin, same thing with New York strips. We've got sirloin, uh, we've got roast, we got brisket, we got ribs. Uh, really, the, what drives this? Uh, just a demand for beef and getting people a good quality piece of meat 
that they know where it came from. Everything comes off our place is rotational grazed. We do supplement with feed and grain as needed for a lot of the cattle. Uh, you're buying local, you're buying right here from the farm. There's no middleman. I don't have anybody else that's got their hand involved in this. Seeing where the beef comes from, being able to live bid and buy something that fits their pocketbook. And that's, that's the kind of American way. You know, let the market pick. Let me get you unmuted here. We're uh, working around some clips. So, I mean, I agree with him. That is the American way. What we call free market capitalism is that they get to choose and, and to be able to say, hey, I want to put my money here. And there happens to be somebody sitting next to me that wants to bid on that same thing. Now we've created our tiny little market and we are finding what the market rate for that product is in real time. And that's just not as available to the end consumer when we completely centralize all of the process. So it's more risky. It tends to lead to a poorer product for the end user and it eliminates options for the end user. And so again, um, we've discussed this multiple times, but many of these large companies are publicly traded which means that by law, they have to maximize profits for their shareholders. Keyword there being maximize profits. And when you look into these more uh, decentralized models, it's not always about maximization of products uh, or of profits, but instead maximization of the quality and receiving the fair market value for that. Yeah. And you know, you said something early on when you were talking about that. And first of all, I agree with you. We need to have the, some of these larger companies so that we can have enough product, enough food to feed a lot of people. But you said earlier, ethically. Now I was in the military and we had a saying, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. So I'm going to put this context back onto the end consumer. You vote with your food dollars. So just like you said, they are responsible for increasing the value for their shareholders. Ethically gets blurred because if you're not cheating, you're not trying, and any competitor that's really driven to be successful and compete will look for ways they can shave time or shave off just enough of the of what's holding them back to win, right? You and I were both in the CrossFit space. Man, I saw some shaving happening all the time, and what they would do is just push right up to the boundary so that it was questionable whether that repetition would count or not. For example, that's just an example, right? So I, I, have, a, I have a good friend that's got probably one of the largest herds of Wagyu in the nation. And on our Instagram, we have that, you know, that Instagram channel where people can follow and get just direct special updates from what we're doing. They get notifications. He uh, is invited to be a contributor on there. And he said, I just got notified from a friend who is on the inside of one of the large four. My name or my company's name came up specifically in the meeting and they have a strategy to wait me out. So I go bankrupt so they can buy my cattle for pennies on the dollar. And he said, you know what? Fuck them because I don't need them. I already have, he goes, the thing I do, he goes, that's a badge of honor that I'm being named by one of the big four as a target. So that's what I thrive off of because they don't know that I don't need them to buy my cattle. I've got people waiting to buy my cattle because of its quality, but that just gives you some insight into some of the strategy that the big four are doing that is not ethical because 
they've got 85%. Now they want 86%, right? We know that our biggest threat and something we're going to go into here in a minute on the software that we're developing is lobbyists because they're going to play dirty and they're going to try to regulate what we're doing out of existence so that they can continue to grow their their share value. Well, that is one way that they are going to play that game. Oh, yeah. Some may go into a little bit uh, more invasive process. So what I'm going to, I have a couple of clips, uh, but before we get into the clips, I want to talk yeah. about the solution before we talk about yeah. the problem. So yeah. w- let's talk about where, let's just say somebody sees this as a, you know, they, they recognize the problem. They desire to make a different decision. Mm-hmm. You started a discord channel that in the, before the front farm uh, from the farm app is going to be launched is a starting place for people to be able to connect with or find ranchers in their area and potentially work with them direct with the producer. So yeah, this is your floor to tell them more about the value of the discord app and why someone would get on it now. Yeah. So there's, so there's actually two things happening and one of them is brand new that I'm developing because of demand. Uh, so, you know, we've set out to create this software that we'll discuss a little further in detail, but the software takes time. And then even when it is released, there's going to be bug fixes. We really are at a time in our country where the sooner I can connect you with your local food producer, it's good for you and the producer. And so I put some thought into, I was like, and so I'm thinking, how do I connect people sooner than later? And also how do we, keep from being silent. So my Instagram grew very rapidly. And because of that, as soon as I became verified to keep people from hacking and taking over so I could keep the platform going, it put me on the radar of the the tech oligarchy that is wants to not have this message get out there. I'm telling you, and I've talked to other people about this in the producer space. If you mention fake meat, lab grown meat or bug burgers, you get silenced rapidly. Uh, or shadow ban. And it's very real. I have this, I can follow the data. This is not me just assuming I am. I can follow the data anyway. So the discord was a way for me to start connecting consumers around the nation with local producers. Now, with that being said, it's kind of being driven by its own community. I created the space. I engage there as much as I can, but I'm busy. We're building a meat processing plant and a software. So I, I always warn people it is, developing on its own. I just wanted a place for y'all to connect in the meantime. There is a city or or excuse me, there's a state for every state in the nation on the, uh, in that discord group that when you get in there, you can join your state and start asking around, who do you know and be connecting that way. There's over, uh, I think there's over 3000 people in there right now that's starting to connect. Um, But the other thing I just started, I've been getting a lot of questions from people, how to buy specifics. How do I buy direct? What does a cut sheet look like? What am I looking for when I'm finding a local producer? So I just recently am in the final stages of finishing up a, a, a an opportunity for people to um, hire my team to do all of the research on your behalf and deliver you a list of the five closest producers that are raising beef um, that meet the standards that you're looking for. I've learned that unless your grandfather was a farmer, 
you probably have no idea how to get engaged directly in the food supply chain. And so there's a real need to re-educate people on how to source food. So I've started doing some one-on-one consulting. I can either do it digitally for you or we can get on a one-hour phone call. Um, But those are the things that I'm trying to create and set up so that people can get to know and start connecting with their local producer and shake the hand that feeds them. That's what that looks like. So just for reference, how much does it cost to get on that channel? Uh, The Discord is free. Exactly. Yeah. The private consulting, if you need more of my time, because that's energy, that's resource with everything I've got to go, got going on, you're going to, it's going to take time away from family. And that's, that's okay. If there's a value exchange, right? So the uh, basic consulting is $49. I'll deliver five local producers. I'll teach you how to do cut sheets and all that kind of stuff or $99. And I'll get on a one hour phone call and really dive in deep and get to know what, what your family needs. So Right now, somebody could go and find your Discord channel, and that would be maybe through your Instagram? Yep, through my Instagram. There's a link tree at the top that has all the information there. So we have a beautiful, free resource for anyone that is maybe saying, I don't know even where to start besides Mm -hmm. following you on on Instagram and uh, trying to get some more of the traffic throttled. Uh, you know, trying try to bust the algorithms, they can yep. go to your link tree, they can check out the Discord channel, and they can go directly into their state channel and try to find connections to uh, the, I don't want to call them verified, but the people that yep. are actively community-led advocacy trying to connect people to their end, end user and trying to connect people to their farmer. Exactly. And here's the thing. On the paid side, I'm going to Google your zip code. Mm. I'm telling you right now, this Mm -hmm. is what I'm doing for you. So you can do it yourself. I want you to be self-reliant. And if you still want to get on a call with me for an hour, we can do that too. I'm going to Google your zip code and the keywords that you're looking for. And the first place that you want to look when you go to that website of that local farmer and rancher is directly to the about page. That will tell you as much as you need to know to see if it's worth making the phone call because the about section is who they are. If it's not super professional, you're probably buying right from the farmer and rancher. Why? Because they're so busy farming and ranching. They don't know or have the time to be developing a highly professional website. So frankly, I look for some of the most antiquated websites when I'm looking for a local farmer and rancher, because it's almost guaranteed that's because the guy's out there working sun up to sundown. And he's like, shit, now I got to build a website. So he throws together what he can. Or, or has, has a nephew or a niece that is yes. uh, more connected to, to the internet knows what to do. Exactly. So that's where you've started and you and yeah. Brooke and your team have been making headway towards what I believe is going to be called the from the farm app. Is that, is that the right. accurate name for now? Yeah, it's from the farm. Mm-hmm. And so tell me more, educate me on, uh, now that you are making headway, what is your vision for the end product and how is that going to provide value for the, for the consumers that are looking for those producers? Yeah. So from the farm is a digital farmer's market. Farmers markets are great. And I suggest everybody looks for the local farmers market that you can, because you can really meet that producer in person on a Saturday or whatever day the the farmers market in your area is set up. Um, But you'll find that many farmers markets are more craft fairs than they are food producing sellers. So from the farm is a digital farmers market that will operate very similarly to Airbnb. 
your geolocation will populate everybody around you that's growing and selling food directly. And then you can filter for the specific product that you're looking for. And when you do, it'll clear everybody off of that uh, map that doesn't have what you're looking for. So you're not wasting time, right? Just like if I'm going to go visit you back home and I want to stay in an Airbnb, I'm, and I want a jacuzzi, I'm going to filter that I need a one bedroom apartment and I would like to have a jacuzzi. And then everybody disappears except for the jacuzzi. That's how from the farm is being designed. It's been four years in the making because the idea first came to me during COVID because I'm driving down the road. I'm seeing livestock in the fields all around me, but yet the news is talking about empty store shelves in the city. And I had this aha moment of why the supply chain is broken. And it's because the consumer doesn't know the producer and vice versa. There's a disconnect between urban, which is the majority of the consumer population and rural, which is the food producing population. So there's a disconnect. They don't know how to speak to each other. You know, I'm a fifth generation. uh, I come from fifth generation ranching family. Um, When I moved to Phoenix, Arizona, I lived there for about 12 years. I really got to understand this sort of disconnect, but also how to speak urban and rural. How do we connect the two? And so that's what this mission has been about. But in order to make it work, I needed to understand the psychology behind buying habits and the messaging that's going to the consumer and the challenges that face the producer to even become available to the local consumer. See, our supply chain has been developed over the last few decades in a way that the the food production industry, and I'll speak to beef specifically because that's my, that's what I know. It wasn't long ago where you had a baby calf born on the farm or the ranch and that calf stayed there until it was ready to eat. Through the need to develop larger uh, uh, supply chains, right? To feed a large population, that's been broken up. And what that looks like now is you have people that do cow-calf, meaning they have baby calves, they raise them to a certain weight, around 450 to 500 pounds, they take that calf to an auction, and then it goes to a different stage. So that's where this, uh, uh, it's kind of funny because it used to be almost centralized but centralized as a whole operation on one local farm. And so that has been broken apart. So now the producer needs to relearn if they want to feed uh, you how to take a calf and instead of selling it 450 or 500 pounds, they need to learn how to finish it up to 1100 pounds or more. So it was ready to be processed, right? So that's, that's what's happened. It's been, so we've got to educate the producer, but also, I don't think people realize what it takes to be a farmer or rancher. It is the most difficult job that requires probably more sacrifice than any other personal sacrifice than any other industry in uh, the world. And that's because when you are, when you have mouths to feed your livestock, your horses that help you round up the livestock, do you think they have vacation time? Do you think they can tell the horse, hey, feed yourself for two weeks. I'll be back. I'm going to go to Cancun. No, they don't have that luxury unless they have a neighbor that can watch things for them. They sacrifice the ability to go on these trips 
around the world if they wanted, even if they were highly successful until they can hire staff, which is not very common, they can't leave. If it's negative 30 outside, do you think that they can run from their car to the office building and then just sit there in front of their computer in the, in the climate controlled environment? No, they're out sometimes on horseback with wind ripping, trying to find lost calves or cattle that need to be taken care of. They have, they're always being pushed to their limits, which is why they're some of the most resilient people there are. So that's kind of what that looks like. And the reason, and and that's all, that is the very reason that when we hear stories like the clip I'm about to play, it becomes infuriating given the level of sacrifice and work that they put in for their end consumers and, you know, for the region and their country. They showed up at 5.30 in the morning in the middle of a blizzard and they had 42 armed federal agents and USDA officials and they cleared out our entire barn and they took them out to Iowa and they killed them for a disease that doesn't exist to this day. In the past three years, there have been at least eight government raids across the U.S. involving raw dairy. In this security camera footage, we see agents entering Rossum's kitchen. Guns drawn. I didn't know what was going on. I mean, it seemed like they thought we had cocaine in the papayas or something. Wednesday, state inspectors raided the farm with the search warrant. While serving the warrant, they not only put tags and tape on the coolers inside the store, they came in here where people actually get their raw milk out of a tank and they poured a dye inside the tank. As an attorney and a former government employee, I need to point out, I'm scratching my head trying to figure out why is this so important to the government? Why are they stamping down on, you know, the little guy? Why don't they go after the foods that are inherently dangerous? So to me, that's the $64,000 question is what's motivating these governmental officials to crack down on small family farms? I've never been so irate. <laughs> I'm going to play it again. I've never been so irate in my whole fucking life. <laughs> When you hear that they're showing up with raids on with guns to farmers and ranchers just just because they're selling raw milk to end consumers, I mean, it makes me furious. Dude, and it goes back to the clip from last week of the EPA becoming armed. Like, are you kidding me? This is a direct it, listen, folks, this is we our food supply chain as a nation is under direct attack by environmental extremist organizations. And I'm telling you, they're doing it because they want control. That's a tin foil hat wearing moment, but I'm wear that hat proudly. Matter of fact, I got to make one of these Brooks. Cause I say these things all the time, but dude, you show happening. up to, you show up to record with me with an actual <laughs> tin foil hat. I'm telling you, bro, you're going to get your yeah, major props from this side. I'm, I'm gonna, you're going to show up and I'm going to be like, just, I'm going to be like, Holy cow. <laughs> Holy cow, AJ's got his tinfoil hat on. Or we just have it sitting on your desk, and when you, and when you need to put it on, you just make the exactly. point. You put it on, you're like, here we go. Yeah, holy cow is right because we're talking about dairy. This exact thing is actually happening in the state of Utah right now. Uh, the, uh, it's a raw dairy producer. Um, and I, I'm going to – we'll probably do a more in-depth show later on, and we'll have them on as a guest. I'm still doing my own research to make sure that the – that the challenges that are facing the dairy are unethical by the, by the state government. Like they certainly seem to be, I'm, I'm reading through, they sent out an email blast to all their consumers and said, this is what's going on. 
what what I'm noticing in and they they put out a really great timeline of what it's been like for them to deal with all of this. They're already they've already lost tens of thousands of dollars in revenue. But the most frustrating part is their timeline of lack of communication. So they come in, shut you down, give you a reason, and then when you appeal it, they don't reply. So you're, it's talking to a block wall. And it's, so it's like, what is actually going on here? I'm surrounded by dairies where I am at now. These are not raw dairies. These are commercial dairies, which are still extremely valuable. I personally believe in raw milk. And I buy my raw milk from a local uh, Everest Acres, and it's like Christmas every time. Uh, um, you can taste a difference in the quality and I feel different when I drink raw milk. And there's a lot of studies and research to be, to be discussed around that. And, and like, like the, the gentleman who created the pasteurization process, his last name was Pasteur and he did some bullshit research back in like the early 1900s that claimed that that was the problem, much like the, the whole shot that we've been, that's been shoved down our throat for the last, uh, I'm trying to be YouTube, YouTube appropriate. Great job, buddy. <laughs> um, that's been shoved down our throat through science. You know, this whole trust at this point, man, trust the science means nothing. I'll, I trust observational science more than I trust anybody who is a scientist that says, and if you're a great scientist, you should be pissed off because your industry and as well as the medical profession professionals have been bastardized for the last three years. It means nothing to me. Well, I mean, it's also the least scientific thing that you could possibly say is to say, trust the science because that's not how science works. Okay. <laughs> science is a method. Now you could say, I trust the scientific method. I'm, yeah. I'm totally on board with that. I too trust the scientific method so much so that I can tell that it's not being applied very well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. So if you're saying trust the science, you are engaging in one of the least scientific mindsets that you could possibly imagine because the um, real basis of science is not to prove things correct. It's to prove things wrong in a sense. It's yeah. set up to uh, remove your bias from the equation so you can really test what's going on. So trust the science was just a marketing slogan that was used to nudge people. Um, and you know what, like, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, you're, you're not actually wearing and no need for the tinfoil hat because fortunately for us, we have receipts. Uh, yep. and, and when people create agendas and they, and they put out marketing materials, we can look at them. Yeah. And one of those people who is bringing these uh, agendas forward is the United Nations. And in other places of the world, we are seeing attacks on farmers. Okay. So in the European Union, specifically in the Netherlands, there has been a very concerted effort to try to disempower actual farmers that have been the lifeblood of the Dutch economy for generations after generations and so we have a nearly four minute clip if you need to you just put your little finger up if you want me to unmute you so you can comment on this otherwise you can let her speak for her three minutes and 50 seconds her name is Ava Vlardingerbroek and she is a Dutch political commentary and philosopher and this, she's describing the uh, efforts that's being waged on the farmers and what agenda this is actually a part of no tinfoil hat needed all you need is a quick google search but i'll let ava do the speaking here so in 2019 the courts ruled that the netherlands was actively in a nitrogen crisis 
And that ruling has been the basis for our government to crack down on our farmers' rights and even move towards expropriation of their land. The nitrogen crisis does not exist. It's a pretext, it's a lie. The nitrogen crisis is a manufactured crisis created by bureaucrats in The Hague and in Brussels. Nobody who's acting in good faith would crack down on one of the most lucrative, hardworking, historically important sectors of our nation. So then the only question that we're left with is why, well, why would they do this then? The attack on farming is part of a bigger global agenda that is centered around control. Remember how I said earlier in this speech that um, the farmers need to give up their, their farms before 2030, specifically that year? Yeah, so that's not a coincidence. That year doesn't come out of nowhere. So that year is basically the deadline that our global elites have given our country and will probably give you um, to abide by these new regulations. And that agenda is called the 2030 Agenda. The 2030 Agenda is a United Nations agenda. So there we go, everybody is part of the United Nations, right? The entire world. And this agenda consists of 17 what they call sustainable development goals. And when you take a look at them right there, you're like, well, What's wrong with that? You know, they all seem very noble. No poverty, no hunger. Who could be against that? However, if we take a closer look at how they actually want to accomplish all of this, anybody with two functioning brain cells realizes that this cannot happen unless there is an active and maybe even forceful redistribution of goods, foods, property, and our rights which basically comes down to the obliteration of all of our basic liberties. And of course, they try to sell it to us under the guise of equality because, well, you know, what is nicer than equality if we want everybody to have something, right? Just like with communism in the old days, you know, it's never really truly about equality. It just means that the super rich get richer and that the rest of us become equally poor and miserable. And these goals, as I said, are not restricted solely to the Netherlands. They are global. And that's where we see their true motive. The people behind this want to establish a one world government, a new world order in which they decide what we eat, when we eat, where we travel, when we travel, who we meet, and what we are allowed to spend our money on. Basically, control over every single aspect of our lives. And I'm sure that many of you have heard the, the famous sentence from Klaus Schwab, you know, where he says, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy, right? Yeah, that's this agenda. So why are the people behind this agenda specifically targeting farmers? Well, it's because obviously they really want our way of life and the things that we eat to radically change. They don't want us to eat foods that make us strong. They want us to eat synthetic meat created by Bill Gates. They want us to eat bugs. They want us to drink soy milk so that we become weak and obedient. And we do as they say and we buy what they offer. Boom, bug burgers. <laughs> That's what they're going for. So my wife and I went to the RCAP USA convention where Ava, this, I believe this clip was recorded at. And, you know, one, 
one of the things she talked about is when basically they're, what they're doing right now is offering them money to sell out. And, and there was a lot of resistance. So they changed the narrative and they started saying that the farmers that wanted to sell out were being bullied by their peers to not sell out. So they're trying to, you know, manipulate the narrative to make the general population believe that most of these farmers and ranchers want this to happen. Not true. If you get to know a farmer and rancher, this is the job they will do till their death because it's not a job. It is a, it is a lifestyle. That's why suicide rates amongst agricultural producers are, are as high as veterans. Be, because when that lifestyle is threatened, when that identity is taken away, that's all they know. The other thing that she said was happening is those who did sell would move across country lines to a neighboring country and start a farm. Well, that did not work for the European Union's agenda. So now they said, once you sell, you are banned from ever starting another farm anywhere in the EU. It is so dirty. There is a Dutch phrase that I'm going to do my, I'm going to bumble through (laughs) to explain the tactic that you just described. Okay. I think that was pretty good. I did a pretty good job. It's Dutch. What it means, loosely translated, is what you say about others is who you really are. Mm. And what they're saying about the others, oh, it's it's the other farmers that are pressuring and bullying everyone into submission. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what they're that's who they really are. That's what they're really doing. Yep. Is they're bullying. Now, I'm going to you know what? Uh uh t- here's Brooks's tin full hat moment. Hold <laughs> on, here we go. I'm going to tra- I'm going to um, magically tr- tr- change. You ready? <laughs> tin full hat Brooks tin full hat Brooks here. How's it going, tin full hat Brooks? I'm doing really well, AJ, and I would like to let people know uh, why they're setting up the one world government to in in the way that they are. Okay, please do. If you were to set up a one world government in the way that most people imagine government, you would have elections, mm-hmm. right? But if you have elections, then that gives you the chance of being voted out. But if you were to create a system where we could have an open door, perpetually continuing non-government elected organization that was creating all of the laws that you were going to have to live under, that would be a much easier way to get my agenda across. Then I have no way of being voted out if people don't like it. What we'll do is we'll create the agenda. And then we will pressure local municipalities all over the world to adopt our principles for fear of being publicly smeared, shamed, left out of whatever promises that they're getting. And that way, we won't have to deal with the consequences. We'll just let people like New York Mayor Adams (laughs) take the heat Here is Mayor Adams in New York describing his awesome agenda to save the planet. 
Mayor Adams wants New Yorkers to eat less meat to combat climate change. Food is the third biggest source of cities' emissions right after builders and transportation. But all food is not... I'm going to pause that right there, AJ. How much food do they produce in New York, my man? Oh, my, my bad. I accidentally muted it. Hold up. Live production, folks. This is a little bit of lag. How much food are they producing over there? Oh, like approximately 0%. So so all that food that they're producing is causing climate change in New York. Oh, my Dang, God. Shame on you, Son New of York. a gun, man. Holy cow. Could you believe it? I'm going to let him finish. He's already starting off with a premise that I don't, I can't get on, but that, that somehow New York is producing so much food that it's causing climate change. I'm going to go, I, I'm just, I'm backing it up a little bit. I'll, I'll let him continue. Biggest source of cities emissions right after builders and transportation, but all food is not created equal. The vast majority majority of food uh, that is contributing to our emission crisis lies in meat and dairy products. No way. According to new data released by the city, 20% of the Big Apple's greenhouse gas emissions come from food production and consumption. And the mayor is now vowing to reduce the city's food-based emissions at agencies by 33% in the next seven years and challenging the private sector to follow suit. And this week, we are exploring the impact of climate change on the tri-state area and the unique ways people here are creating solutions. You can watch our special Climate Change Protecting Our Planet Thursday at 5.30 right here on CBS2 and streaming on CBS News New York. So let me break this down real quick, Brooks. He's actually not entirely wrong. New York City food habits are contributing to climate change or global warming or whatever thing you want to put in there. But here's how, because a hundred percent of New York's food is imported to New York. They aren't producing their own food. They have forsaken their farmers and ranchers surrounding them. And throughout this country that Eric Adams is right. Their food habits are contributing to, let me put it in the proper context, desertification of our climate of, of our, excuse me, of our planet. Climate change is bullshit. The climate is always changing. What is real and measurable is desertification from the lack of proper uh, uh, management and enough ruminating animals. Oh, by the way, what's a ruminating animal? Beef, bison, elk, deer, meat. Yeah. The, the, the the oceans are acidic, uh, having too much acidity. I'm sure it has nothing to do with the huge tankers that are taking (laughs) fruit from South America all the way to Vietnam, just to package it, just to ship it back to the United States. I'm sure that has nothing to do with it. It must be all those damn ruminating animals burping (laughs) it up. Causing climate change. All those beef farts and beef burps are just destroying us. Man, I don't even know how we (laughs) crawled out of the ocean from evolution with all that methane. Just sec bend yourself. Also, I think this is a good opportunity to remind people this important point. Profitability and health actually are at odds. Oh, shit. (laughs) Profitability and health are actually at odds. So... That the way that these, I still got my tenfold hat on. Remember, I haven't changed yeah, out yeah. of it. So yeah. you have the non-government government governing 
uh, mind controlling because we discussed, I think, already on the show, the etymological origins of the word government, gubernare and mens. Gubernare is the Latin word for control. We have a gubernatorial okay. election. Yeah, we vote for mm-hmm. governors. Gubernare means to control. Mens means mind. Mm. The, the the etymological origins of government is literally mind control. Mind control. Okay, <laughs> and if you don't believe me, you can look up an organization called Menza. Men's Menza. Mm-hmm. Menza is a high IQ society. People with the biggest minds, big biggest brains. So, uh, uh, they. So, if I was a uh, non-elected massive organization that wanted to be able to initiate things without being suspected. And they didn't want to lose power because if we could actually be voted in, that means we could be voted out. I would push it through the local municipalities. I would have people like Eric Adams, who, with all due respect for him, he may have some very... I'm not a a citizen in New York. I didn't have the chance to vote for him, and I don't have the chance to vote against him. I'm just going to make the assumption that he's not really knowledgeable about food. I'm going to make the assumption that he has very little idea what he's talking about, and he has people handing him papers and speeches from quote-unquote experts, and those experts, I'm sure, are in no way influenced by these large organizations known as the UN, the World Economic Forum, the the World Bank, you know, you, you name it. So uh, if I were to create a scheme or scam that could allow us to govern the globe without actually having to be elected, I would definitely push it through the local municipalities. And that right there, I'm going to go ahead and transform back and take my tinfoil hat off. Welcome back, Brooks. Oh, it's good to be here, man. My hair looks good. I, I, no tinfoil hat. I'm either. not sure. I'm not sure if I missed the other guy or not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm Let sure me. he'll be back. But let me bring this uh, to the, the, the home court uh, experience, my experience. So in regenerative agriculture has been a big part of my mission, my purpose, my passion. So in 2020, I bought 40 acres of land, not a lot, in a place called the Escalante Desert in southern Utah. The Escalante Desert is 3,000 square miles of land mass that is known as the Escalante Desert. Uh, there's nothing out there and you can't, it's hard to find water rights. You only get water from drilling in the aquifer and pumping the water out. It's primarily ag land and it has a, a, a an interesting history of um, railheads to move livestock sheep primarily uh, across the country. So I bought this land and ended up meeting a, a guy right next to my piece of property who has 20 acres. And we started talking about regenerative agriculture. So now our project is called the Escalante Land Trust. It's a nonprofit that is going to be set up as a potentially a savory hub institute. So uh, my partner, Jim, has been calling around to acquire some water rights so that he can move out there and manage this land holistically full time. Uh, He contacted the local water service agency and was asking them questions. And he was told, and this is what he's telling me, by the way, because I was not on the phone call. He said, they said that we are not supposed to share this but that's always if, a great start. Conversation. I mean, okay. I love people who work in local uh, governments 
that will take their government hat off and put their own tinfoil hat on and share the, the, the facts. We need more you Ron know? Swansons in the world from Parks and Recreation. We, <laughs> yes. If all government employees could be Ron Swanson, that's an America I want to live in. That's 100%. And so they said that if the aquifer does not rise by 2030, they will ban what all date? pumping. Uh, 2030, sometime in 2030. I don't know if that has anything to do with anything. Uh, well, I, I'm going to let you finish your story, but I'm going to interrupt you with a one minute clip. This is crossroads with Joshua Phillip about the, how the they're sneaking it in and how local municipalities are, are uh, going to be trying to, uh, quote unquote, not ban meat, but really get rid of it. And let's see if there's a, a, a crossover here. There might be. Rumors were swirling last month. 14 cities in the United States are planning to ban meat. The news made its rounds mostly on conservative news websites. And as expected, well, establishment news outlets were quick to label the whole thing as fake. But dig into these a bit more and you'll find something a bit odd. There's a play on words. The cities are not planning to ban meat outright. They're pushing to reduce consumption of meat, with zero consumption being the target. You get that? It's all part of the C40 Cities program. According to the C40 Cities website, it says that mayors will use their procurement powers to change what kind of food cities buy and introduce policies that make healthy, delicious, and low-carbon food affordable and accessible for all. I was wrong about the date. That date was actually in the Eric Adams clip. Uh, but point being made, he said that they were going to use the mayors. They're yeah, tenfold hat Brooks. Great job, buddy. Yeah, they, <laughs> they said they're going to use the mayors. They're going to yeah. use your local municipalities to push this stuff through, and they're going to be like, "What? We didn't have any power. We had nothing to do with that." Yep. Please continue with your story. The aquifers. <laughs> So the aquifers, if they don't rise, they're going to ban pumping. And I pushed back and I said, well, they can't take your water rights. And he said, I asked them that. And they said, they're not going to take water rights. They're just going to ban pumping. So, you know, this is where local the importance of being involved in your local politics really matter. What happens, Brooks, if you don't have water on ag land? You can't grow for, anything. You can't grow anything or raise anything cattle need to drink water and what else is one of the agendas to depopulate rural environments are you familiar with what they're calling smart cities that is also openly discussed and has a target initiative that is not a tinfoil hat but an actual facts that you can find from the people themselves that are working to make this happen so if you remove pumping from rural environments and you now no longer have water and oh by the way the state of utah has some of the most ridiculous rainwater harvesting laws so you can't even catch rainwater to supplement the pumping that you're now no longer allowed to do now here's what i want to say specific about the science of what's going to happen okay in an environment like the Escalante Desert, the reason I bought land out there was because I know through proper management, holistically managed livestock, regenerative agriculture, you can increase what is known as the soil infiltration rate of rain. So two years ago, three years ago, if you go Google uh, train derailment Utah, 
a locomotive train was washed away by rain in the desert. So what that means is because of the lack of ruminating animals in that valley, the rain cannot infiltrate where it lands. So it builds up on the watersheds and then comes down in torrents. That's what causes flooding in deserts because that rain could not penetrate the soil where it landed. A 1% increase in soil organic matter will retain 20,000 gallons of water per acre. So if those aquifers Uh, If the land above the aquifer was holistically managed or managed regeneratively, every acre would be holding an additional 20,000 gallons per 1% increase, and you would increase the volume in the aquifer. Nobody involved in the agenda wants to know that because it removes their intention, which is putting people in smart cities and controlling what you eat through lab-grown meat, fake meat, bug burgers, all of these other things that is attached to their agenda. I pulled a clip from episode seven of the Serious Fun podcast called Artificial Everything, and this is a member of the Australian Parliament. His name is Alex Antic, describing smart cities. Just going to drop it for our listeners here. Thank you, Mr. Acting Deputy President. Australian cities are becoming digital surveillance precincts with so-called smart city programs being rolled out across the country. Invasive technologies such as facial recognition cameras, license plate readers, smart lights, smart poles, smart cars, smart neighbourhoods, smart homes and smart appliances all connected to wireless networks and communicating with each other. So what's wrong with that? Technology is good, isn't it? All this is for your safety, security and convenience, isn't it? Well, let me tell you, your streets are spying on you, your mobile phone is spying on you, your cities are spying on you, and the infrastructure for future lockdowns is being put into place right now. Don't be fooled. You're being set up to be tracked through your movements and through the future of your digital wallets. By handing over your data, you're handing over the ability to monitor your behaviour, which will soon be turned into a social credit score. And once the central bank digital currencies are in place, you won't get to spend your money without approval. Digital ID will soon become a reality in Australia. Many other countries are already rolling these systems out. Countries like Canada, Scotland and many others. Eventually, you won't be able to access any government or public services and you won't be able to travel across borders or access healthcare or the internet without a digital ID. Think you won't comply? I think you will. The last two years were the dress rehearsal and we fell for it hook, line and sinker. Australians are sleepwalking into this technocratic future. The totalitarian tiptoe. <laughs> the totalitarian tiptoe. Uh, and if you can't, if you can't, uh, well, if, if they have control over how you can spend your money, I imagine there may be some centralized companies that would find themselves on an approved list and there would be lots of decentralized small farmers and ranchers that may find themselves off of said approved spending lists. You know what, AJ? I think we just need just like a little bit of a break. So in the serious yeah. fun podcast, which we're gonna, which we're gonna, uh, we're gonna pull from some of that today, uh, we have what's known as a producer break, and I think now is a great time for our producer break. Oh dear listener, welcome to the first feed the people producer break. 
here in the producer break on episode five is where you are going to be able to hear all of the people that have contributed to being a producer of this show. Being a producer comes in three different forms. You can give us your time, you can give us your talent, or you could preferably give us your treasure. So in the future, we will have a producer segment that I'm sure is going to be a mile long, a country mile long, full of all the people that have come together to make this show a reality. But first, I would like to recognize our first producer, and that is Utah Beef Producers. Thank you, Utah Beef, for contributing their treasure to make this show possible. We greatly appreciate it. Another person who's made this show possible, the person who created Skunk Holler, the person who created Jeet Jet, which is the song that I, the small little ditty that I just played, and the person who has our outro that is yet to be named, and that is my boy, Nate Baumgartner. I'm going to give a quick round of applause for my guy, Nate Baumgartner. He's a good friend, he's a coach, and he is a uh, strong supporter of everything that I've done, the Serious Fun Podcast, The King Says Yes, and now Feed the People. He is a producer of this show, and for that, we want to say one more time, round of applause, thank you, Nate Dog, also Nate Baumgartner. And in the future, you will be able to donate your time, your talent, your treasure. So the way you can donate your time is really simple. You can listen to the show. You can listen to the show. That's a great start. You are giving us your time if you're giving us your attention. Attention is a currency. So thank you in the attention economy for choosing to invest your time into listening to me and AJ. And when she is available, Miss Brooke Entz, make this show a reality. So this is part of the value for value model. If you are receiving value from what we are doing, we ask that you give it back at the value that you are able. For some people, that may mean listening to it and referring a friend. That may mean dropping us a kind comment or giving us a five-star rating wherever you hear us. Our recommendation, if you're listening to the audio version, check out Podverse. Podverse is a podcasting 2.0 app. It will allow you to donate your treasure directly through the app, directly to us here at Feed the People. And you could, of course, share anything that you see AJ putting out on Instagram and anything that you do to donate your time. We greatly appreciate it. Now, you could give us your talent, okay? And there are so many ways that you could offer us some talent, all right? So uh, one way, like Nate, he, he, he is a talent producer because he gave us his music. You could find us a clip and you could send us a really important news clip and in that case, you would be a producer of the show, and we would greatly appreciate it. Um, you could produce so many different things. And so next I have a, uh, we have another producer. Um, nor, we don't take sponsors. And the reason we don't take sponsors is we intend to keep our voice free. Freedom. And as soon as you start taking like sponsors, it can get kind of tricky because then it's a it's an exchange and they may want you to say something that is not in alignment with your message. So we only take producers that are here to support what we're doing and support our values. And uh, we have a commercial that has been donated uh, from another show called Serious Fun. And if we were going to take a sponsor, this would be the only one that we take. Looking swell there, Barb. What you been doing? Oh, gee, Ken, I'm sure glad you asked. 
All that tofu I was eating gave me the toots. So I talked to my farmer and he suggested cow. With cow, I can pick up my prescription at any grocery store or supermarket. You can eat it, you can drink it, you can even rub it on your skin, don't you know? Oh wow, Barb, I had no idea all the benefits of cow. You betcha. Get moving in the right direction by asking your farmer about grass-fed and finished cow. Side effects may include increased vitality and muscle mass, clear skin, restful sleep, and eliminating Big Pharma from your wallet. Cow, get the prescription you can pet. Shout out to Barb, Barb and Ken. We love Barb. Barb is voiced by my beautiful wife, Hallie Meadows. One more shout out to Hallie Meadows. Trust me, Barb will be a regular on the Feed the People podcast. And so that is another example of how one could donate their talent. You like what we're doing? You want to add some fun to the mix? Make us a funny little bit in commercial. And you may find yourself on the Feed the People podcast. Um, I have, uh, and then there's, there's the treasure. I haven't even covered the treasure. By next episode, which will be episode four, I will give you very explicit instructions as to where you can deliver that donation to become a producer. And I will give you the levels at which you will receive access to being on the Feed the People podcast based on the size of your donation. And again, this all of this is going to go back into making this experience better and further reaching. We did not start this podcast because we thought we were going to make a million dollars, okay? If you no. if you think that we're out here trying to make a million dollars on this podcast, you don't know much about podcasts, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. But you can make a difference by voting with your dollars, and that is the future of media. That is the future of all decentralized services is that you get directly with the person providing that value, whether it's a rancher, whether it's a farmer, or whether it's a couple of hum, uh, humble podcasters. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, one other thing that I really like to do, just because we're hanging out here, <clears throat> is I like another version of talent that you could send us in, is if you make music and you would like to hear your music on this show, you can actually send us your music by sending it to Brooks at SeriousFun.io, and it may end up on a future future iteration of... Bop or Flop. Oh, welcome to Bop or Flop, AJ. <laughs> I, got for us, I am assigning AJ the task of listing this song as either a bop or mm. a flop. Now, you, All right. you, you can probably... This seems like a pretty simple game. Yeah. What's a bop? A bop would be something that you want to bounce to. Makes you want to dance. Cool. And what's a flop? You just are embarrassed to even be listening to it. All right. Here we are with our first bop or flop. Now 
nature has a very harmonic frequency to it. The colors are very healing, the sounds are very healing. Nature is very abundant. It's dynamic intelligence within nature that from a very early age as children we connect with. That's our primal natural system. So children essentially embody already a very deeply connected resonance, resonance with harmonics and the intelligence of nature. Nature, nature. Go to the forest, go to the ocean. How we doing, AJ? I'm going to call it a bop, bro. Oh, my man's got a bop on his hands. My man's got oh, a bop yeah. on his hands. Let's give it a round of applause. Round of applause for our first iteration of Bopper Flop, and that was called The Forest in the Ocean by none other than my boy Nate Baumgartner. Nice. Just killing it with the music game. Way to go, Nate. Love Thank that. you, Nate Dog. Thank you, Nate Dog. And so if you find yourself somewhere in this future hearing this episode or joining us on a later podcast, just know that just because you heard episode three and and we happen to be on episode 27 or whatever it is that you couldn't have heard this gotten value and decided you know what i'm gonna go vote with my dollars i'm gonna go vote with my time or i'm gonna go vote with my talent and you too can be a contributor a producer of the feed the people podcast now aj we only have a couple of clips remaining i want to clear the deck on them that way we can uh you know start fresh next episode but yep. you sent me something called Collectively Sustainable. And it yes. is a great clip to describe value for value. It is, a, it is a value for value message that we have for the people here. So if you'd like, I would like to clear some runway for our listeners to get a direct message from, can you tell me who this is from? Uh, I can't remember his first name, but it's Farm Fresh 24-7 out of Atlanta. Farm Fresh 24-7 out of Atlanta. This is likely the leader of that movement. And this clip, it's it going to be, it's on a little bit of the longer side. We tend to want to keep them shorter, but the message is so potent. I think it's a good way, uh, a good time to give them that airway to describe this because it really ties into the message of this show. Right. Collectively sustainable. That's the mission. That's the mission. Collectively sustainable is when you... Find the people in your area who are traveling in the same direction as you. You organize with the people in your area who's traveling in the same direction as you. That means they have started on their journey. They started to take the steps necessary, the hard steps necessary, internally first. Before anything is manifested on the outside, we had to do the mental work. We had to break free mentally. We had to question what we broke free from first. Anybody on this path is solid. The culture we're building is we support one another. That's it. We're supporting one another intentionally. We're redirecting what we've been brought and programmed to perceive as truth, and we're saying that's a lie. We go further together. The time is now. The stage is set. The moment is right. It's time to execute. Get people in your own area riled up about connecting and supporting one another, and we shall be free. That's it. If we all begin to do it, there's no one to fear. 
the people who are telling me to be careful and the government are coming out, the best thing you can do is start in your area. The fuck they gonna do, come for all of us at the same time? I'm just saying you gotta be a rider though. Pray for peace, prepare for war. And that's not a bad thing, that's called balance. That's called understanding where you're going and understanding that some difficulties might lie ahead as well. But when you have community and people to back you up, you're empowered, you're strengthened. What are you adding to your community is the question. It's a puzzle piece that only you fit. You're the missing element right now for this movement to take off. What are you putting into the community in your area, your neck of the woods? If you're a marketer, how are you marketing collectively sustainable as a new norm? If you're an artist, how are you drawing collectively sustainable? How are you mentioning it in your, your art, your music? How are you reflecting what we want to see within our community, within our neighborhoods? Or are you only making art on where you lie instead of where you want to go? If you're making art about where you are, then prepare to stay here. Collectively, we're out of here. We're switching up the narrative. We're changing the culture in the blinking of, in the twinkling of an eye. And as a man thinking, that's it. What are you adding? You don't necessarily need to be a grower, baker, or maker right now to be a part of it. But everybody's going to have to have have a level of stewardship attached to them. That's the movement. So while you're learning to be a steward, I don't care if you're saving seeds from your produce from the grocery store. I don't care if you started composting in a bucket on your balcony, on your patio. I don't care if you started practicing zero waste and, you know, you use everything at least twice before you toss it. That's an effort. That starts here. You can start anywhere. But now what are you adding to the pot for your community? That's the question. Because you can't pull out more than what you put in. That's the culture. Reciprocity. That's how we should treat nature. That's my philosophy. As much as nature gives us, we gotta pour back in. As much as we take from the community, we gotta put back in. Just starting on food, it's gonna span, it's gonna go everywhere. If you're a child care provider and you keep we have that in our community right now, we swap it out. If we need a date night, we'll take our kids to our trusted community member who we help with establish her garden and her raised beds and give her lessons on how to be sustainable. It's a swap out. It don't just stop at food. This is the raw resource, the human being, and then pulling from nature itself, we manifest everything. This is the raw resource. And if you're scared, goddamn, stay out the comments. This is for the riders only, the bosses only, not the pessimists. This is for folks who understand the power of collective thinking as well as collective action. The time is now collectively sustainable grab your shirt support the movement if that's how you got if you have money right now to contribute find the people in your area that you can buy from if you got money to contribute jump on sealsfamilyforum.com and buy one of these collectively sustainable shirts that's how you can support me since you asked 
And since you feel like you don't have anything else but the money as you learn the transition, that's beautiful. We need that too. Because the people who are stepping over need support too. Find the people in your community. Start supporting them. People in the community, jump on that Farm Fresh app. Put your uh, additives out there. Put your product, products, produce, handmade goods, homemade goods. Put them on the app so people can support you. Start to make those connections now. Balls in our court. Yeah. You know, what he spoke to was what we were talking about earlier. It's the counter to the the mayors doing the bidding of these evil agendas. We fight local. We survive local. This is how we make that change happen is when we rally together as local populations, your dollar is what makes the change happen and how and where you choose to spend that. Or I will say invest that because we have to change the narrative of what the value of food is. It is an investment. You will find cheaper food. We cannot compete with the corrupt large four organizations that are manipulating the system to make their product cheap and unhealthy. We can't compete at the dollar level, but when you invest in your quality of food, your brain will light up. You'll see things for what they are. You'll be able to create more in your life. You're going to have more momentum, more energy, more passion for what you're up to. And you do that at the local level. This man's brilliant. I love what he's doing in Atlanta, Farm Fresh 24-7. When you go and watch what they're up to, when they get together as a community on the weekends and you have all of these contributors that are coming together in a park and they're exchanging goods, they're supporting one another as a community. This will be what helps us through the coming days, months, and maybe years of what we're facing, uh, not just locally, but nationally. And the beautiful thing is that you can also find your community online. You can get on that Discord channel. You can get on AJ's Instagram. You could listen to the Feed the People podcast and you could come together with like-minded, like-valued human beings and make a difference in your life and the life of others. That is the beauty of the time that we live in now. AJ, any final words for the people, by the people, before we cut out of here? Everybody, thanks for the support. It's really tremendous to see the support that we have in this movement. Anytime there's some negative feedback, we got writers, just like this man says. I don't have to say anything if I don't want to. You guys are ride and die, and you're all over any of the negative comments that come my way. So thanks for the support, everyone. Shake the hand that feeds you. Couldn't have said it any better myself. And that is a wrap on episode three of the Feed the People podcast. I think we're going to call this one From the Ground Up. AJ, always a pleasure, my man. I will see you next week. Likewise, Brooks. See you there.